Hello, friends, and welcome to the Caroline Gleick Show. Caroline here. I'm your host. On this podcast, we're going to be exploring a variety of topics from adventure and activism, climate change messaging, mountaineering, skiing, relationships, and how we can use sport to change the world. I am thrilled to welcome my next guest on the show. Sonny Strower is a runner, climber, and adventurer with a specialty in the high-altitude endurance realm. She holds speed records on Aconcagua and the Annapurna Circuit, and she's excelled on high trails in the Colorado Rockies. She's best known for her solo pursuits. Sonny is a photographer, storyteller, and advocate for gender equality in the work she does as the founder of nonprofit Awe Expeditions, where she organizes high-altitude mountain trips across three continents. Sonny is a fellow Lakey athlete, and she's the owner and guide at Dreamland Safari Tours, where she guides outdoor adventure tours in southern Utah and northern Arizona. Sonny's been a big inspiration to me in the way she dreams big and sets her goals sky high. And following her on social media gives me a lot of motivation and inspiration. Oh, thank you, Caroline. You are making me blush because you are a massive inspiration to me, obviously. Sunny, I'm stoked to chat with you today. Before we get started, let's talk about the Awe Expedition Scholarship Program. That's exactly right. And that was actually one of the main reasons that I was incredibly excited to come on your podcast right now, because um, besides the fact that I love the idea of chatting with you and the fact that you're finally doing a podcast, um, but... I currently have a program running that I'm really excited about and really proud of and that I was just hoping to get the word out about. Um, It's called the All Summit Scholarship Program. And what we're talking about here is $20,000 worth of expedition scholarships for women to go and climb um, Kilimanjaro with my organization, All Expeditions, um, once COVID settles down and once it's safe again to do so. So right now, all the way through April 15 is when we're accepting applications. The scholarship program is open to any woman um, above the age of 18. You don't have to be based here in the U.S. And um, there are four scholarships available. Each one of them is a package of a complete expedition fee waiver, um, $500 towards the international airfare, as well as really awesome mountaineering gear from Loa Boots, from Sierra Designs, and from Lecky, as a matter of fact. So I think you know it's a really cool opportunity to um, get a taste of high-altitude mountaineering without having to break the bank. That's so awesome. Thank you for doing that. So I will include a link to that at the, in the show notes um, so people can follow up and hopefully support that work, that important work you're doing. Oh, that'd be fantastic. And as I said, you know, the, the scholarship is really just designed to go and decrease the barriers of entry for women to go and experience um, the big mountain arena. And I'm really excited that I've been able to secure partners this way to create four scholarships. Last year, there was a scholarship as well, which was just a single one. And there were more than 200 women who applied for a single scholarship. You know, so this year, there are four available. And I'm really, really excited about the program. That's awesome. Okay, so where in the world are you today? Where are you calling me from? I am calling you from Kanab, Utah, which uh, in case you don't know Kanab, it's a tiny little town in southwest Utah of about 5,000 people, and it's smack in the middle between Zion National Park, Bryce National Park, and the north rim of the Grand Canyon. So um, it's a really cool place to be. It's a good place to be, you know, during social distancing, but of course the coronavirus is impacting everybody. Yes, absolutely. Well, it sounds like a nice place to post up for a little bit or (laughs) for a long time. There's a lifetime of exploration (laughs) down there. 
Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to hear a little bit more about your backstory. Can you tell me kind of how you, like, I, I love this story. So I'd love for you to tell everyone kind of your transformative moment in life. <laughs> well, there are a couple really of those moments, but you know, the, yeah, the short, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I was just saying the, I mean, kind of like, um, your corporate background, I guess, and that transformative moment, because I'm sure that you have yeah. a lot of other, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, I was um, working in business, and I was a complete weekend warrior up until my late 20s, really. Um, I have a business degree and, you know, worked as a strategy consultant, and I, as a matter of fact, was a complete couch potato when I was younger. Didn't go and get physically active, really, until I was maybe 24, 25, but right around the time that I started my business career, I also fell in love with running and with climbing. And um, after you know, a couple of years of trying to go and do both the business career and being a passionate weekend warrior, I realized that I was just incredibly unhappy sitting in an office. And um, I made the decision to quit and completely turn my life around. Um, two weeks after I paid back the last of my student loans, I quit my job, moved out of my apartment into a $2,800 Chevy Astro van that I had built out myself with a handsaw. And I started, yeah, just running and climbing and spending all my time in the outdoors. That's so awesome. Now let's talk about some of your accomplishments because every time I look through your resume or see you set a new FKT or complete a solo unsupported climb, my mind is completely blown. So how did you get into mountaineering? I started mountaineering um, during business school, actually. I was in school up in Boston, and uh, I tried to go and climb Mount Washington a couple times in the summer because, you know, nice little peak that should be a fun hike, just, you know, however many thousands of feet. It's a, it's a small mountain, but it has ferocious weather, and so I kept getting shut down um, time after time after time in good conditions in the summer because there was always a freak storm moving through or, you know, just something not working out properly. So finally, I got really fed up with that and I said, you know what, if I can climb Mount Washington in the summer, I might as well learn how to do it properly in the winter. And so I signed up for a winter mountaineering course and um, I got hooked. And then about a year and a half later, I traveled to Nepal and climbed my first 6,000 meter peak there. And it was all downhill wow. from there. That's quite the jump from Mount Washington to a 6,000 meter peak in Nepal. I think Though that's something probably I... The ahead. weather was better in Nepal as a matter of fact. You know, summoning Mount Washington was uh, more intense at that point. <laughs> I believe it. I have mad respect for all the mountaineers that come from the East Coast because the weather there is horrendous and oh, yeah. the bushwhacking can also be really gnarly. <laughs> yes, it's, you know, they're small mountains, but they're mighty. Yes, yes. Okay, so now talk to me about the Aconcagua 360 route and summit and becoming the first woman to pull that off. How many miles and kilometers was that? How much vert? What altitude? And how long did it take you? Yeah, so Aconcagua, for those who are listening, listening who are not familiar with the mountain, is um, the second highest of the seven summits. It's almost 23,000 feet tall, and it's down in Argentina in the Andes. I um, have climbed that a number of times by now, but a couple of years ago, I became the first woman to go run around the mountain and climb it at the same time in a single push without stopping. So that was a 64-mile route with about, I think, 17,000 feet of elevation gain all in all, and then the same back down, obviously. The kicker, of course, is that you start at 9,000 feet and you go all the way up to the summit, right? So even though... For an ultra runner, anyway, the distance and the pure vertical gain isn't even that intense. 
the overall course is really, 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 really hard because you spend so much time, you know, above 14,000 feet and in super yeah. extreme circumstances. Um, so, yeah, I did that in 2018 in January and it took me about 47 and a half hours. Um, wow. And yeah, that was it. <laughs> That's insane. Okay. So wait, how many miles, kilometers was it again? Total? Uh, 64, 64 miles, which is about 104 kilometers. And yeah, as I said, it goes, you know, all the way around the mountain plus a summit and, um, you know, 47 and a half hours and about 20 minutes of sleep in there. <laughs> That's insane. How did you stay awake for that long? I don't know i mean it's one of those things where in ultra running you know one of the biggest competitive advantages i guess that you can build up towards is to find a way to not have to sleep and i was actually yeah. really bummed that i had to go and take that 20 minute nap that you know i just mentioned because my rule had been that i wasn't supposed to lay down and sleep anywhere on the upper mountain because you know obviously if you're doing something like this on your own and uh, you are up at 18 19,000 feet in you know below zero temperatures you don't have any sleeping gear it's dangerous to go and lie down and Absolutely. sleep right so I yeah I really didn't want to do that but I got to a point um after about I think maybe 28 29 hours or so where I was just so tired that I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore and I didn't have a choice um but yeah you know outside of that training up to stay awake I think is mostly just a matter of gradually increasing the amount of time that you spend on your feet, um, gradually doing longer mm -hmm. and longer missions. I mean, I remember the first time I ever did something that took me 24 hours, you know, that was a really big deal. And that was many years ago by now. Now, if I say yep. that a mission is going to take 30 or 36 hours or even 40 hours, it's like, okay, I know that I can probably do that without sleep. That's wild. Okay. So how did you know you were ready to try that? And especially solo, like the solo part blows my mind. Yeah, I, I really didn't know that I was ready. Um, I think in a way you never know with those things, right? And that's part of the appeal that there's so much uncertainty and just a big element of discovery and whether or not it's going to be possible. But I did know that I was fit. I knew that I was acclimatized because I'd already guided the mountain um, twice before attempting that speed record. And I also knew that I was well positioned because I had done my homework. I'd been on all of the trails. I knew all of the terrain and I had mm -hmm. pre-placed um, caches to have supplies at various points on the mountain. So with a good weather window, you know, I just knew that I had to go for it and that was going to be it. That's so cool. So my question, my next question is something that I struggle with a lot with my training and I know a lot of other people do as well. And that is how do you find that right balance between having an ambitious goal and then overreaching? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. Um, it's really hard to answer too. I mean, yeah. my general mode has always been overreach um, rather than yeah. having a goal that's not ambitious enough because the reality is for me, if, if I know that I can do something, I'm typically not motivated to prepare for it, right? If I'm yeah. certain that I can be successful, it's just a matter of going through the motions and putting in the training and putting in the time and then executing it flawlessly. And that just isn't all that interesting to me. I really like pushing myself in environments where I'm not sure that I can succeed. Now, I think there's a bit of a difference, you know, between what you do and what I do, because for example, when I think about your shooting galley project, you know, that's one of those things where I look at a lot of the lines that you skied and I'm like, oh, wow, that is really, really impressive. And to me, really terrifying. And there were some real consequences there. You know, if you did not execute properly or if you weren't over yeah. your head, you could have died, right? So that 
to me, you know, that's um, scary and really impressive. And a lot of the things that I do have pretty low objective hazards. So I try to choose things that even if I do screw up in a way, I'm not necessarily looking at really severe physical consequences. I'm just looking at slowly, you know, walking back to the start with my tail between my legs. But what would happen if you rolled an ankle or if you were unable to continue? Like, how would you get extracted? I think that being on Aconcagua in the middle of nowhere in no man's land on this trail by myself, that sounds way more scary and risky to me than on some (laughs) steep chute that's really close to Salt Lake City with like a level one trauma center. And like, not that I'd ever want to use life flight or rescue services, but um, if I needed to, I know I'd probably be able to get evacuated. Yeah. I mean, you're right from, from that perspective. It's just that I typically think that the stuff that I do is risky only in a very slow and strategic way as in you know yes there are ways that I could get Mm -hmm. myself in trouble I could sprain an ankle break something I could completely bonk you know the weather could just turn on me whatever I mean there are many things that could go wrong but for the vast majority of them I will see them coming for hours before they actually become acute right which gives me time to react yeah and which also allows me to come up with a a rescue plan and how I'm going to self-rescue so for example with the sprained ankle you're right you know if you're up there on the summit you are miles away from the road and it would be really hard to get out. But the reality is, you know, I, I have trekking poles, which I would use as crutches. And there is ranger yeah. infrastructure all over the mountain. So there's actually medical staff and there are rangers um, probably somewhere within 10 miles of you, which you know, makes things a little bit safer. Yeah. Okay. Well, it just seems crazy to me. Um, it's really impressive. Okay. So I was checking out your website and... One of the things that I loved is that you listed mountains that you've attempted, but you haven't summited. I thought that was really cool. And it really inspired me for redoing my resume of mountaineering because I think it's those failures where we really learn the most, but we're so reluctant, especially I think being a woman, I'm way more reluctant to talk about them. So I wanted to ask you, what are the failures you're most proud of and what did you learn? Uh, I love that topic because I think the way we as society look at failure is so warped and just so not helpful. You know, to me, some of my biggest and best days in the mountains were days where I didn't accomplish what I had set out to do. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you were asking about my proudest failures. What I would put in there is, for example, Nolan's 14, you know, that big 100 mile uh, 14 14ers link up in Colorado that I tried last summer. So gnarly. I got mm-hmm. my butt handed to me, pardon my language. You know, I, I had to drop out. I managed to only do 10 of the peaks before I tapped out and said, there's no way I can do it. And I was out there with two other girlfriends, one of whom completed the line in like 71 hours, which was hours, you know, slower than wow. the speed record that we were trying to break. So yeah, she she got it done, but she didn't set the speed record. And, you know, myself and my other friend, we both had to drop out. And yet that to me is one of my proudest days in the mountains and one of the best times that I've had out there trying to pursue something big. Um, similarly, a big peak in Bolivia you know, I was I was out there and climbing in Bolivia in I think 2013 or 2014 with a friend of mine, and we made it up um, this peak called the, the head of the Condor Cabeza de Condorieri um, to maybe 150 yards or so below the summit elevation. But the challenge was, you know, mm-hmm. we were only 150 yards below the summit, but it was along a knife edge ridge, so to actually get to the true summit was still going to take us probably two or three hours and we were late in the day we were moving slow and 
we just didn't feel safe to go and continue and push for that. And so we turned around. But still to this day, I think that that's one of my better climbs and like the, the achievements that I'm proud of. That's so I just I really appreciate how you embrace failure like that and are willing. It's taken me a long time to be able to be open and honest about my failures as well. And I think that you're setting a great example for other mountaineers or endurance athletes. Um, so on the flip side of that, what do you consider your greatest accomplishments? <laughs> um, that question might be even harder. I, I'd certainly put the Aconcagua 360 up there because that was just a really difficult, you know, really, um, just really far and remote effort. Um, funnily enough, I, I set another speed record in Aconcagua a couple of years before that, which was a shorter speed record going from base camp to the summit. And that was really the one thing that in a way, you know, brought me onto the scene and the, the outdoor industry, I guess. But that day is one of the days that I'm least proud of because I set the speed record. And uh, when I got to the summit, I had nothing left in the tank and I had pushed way harder than I had intended to. And I had real trouble getting back down safely. Right. So um, there's the flip side mm -hmm. to, to that story. But I think if you look at it categorically, probably the thing that I'm proudest of is um, the fact that I made the jump from corporate into doing this, into following my passions, because that was really scary. And it's hard. You know? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later in the show. But um, well, th I think th right now, three quarters of Americans are under a shelter in place initiative because of the coronavirus. And what I wanted to ask you is, what have you learned from your adventures that applies to our situation now in dealing with coronavirus? I think, you know, there's so many lessons from outdoor adventure that are applicable to dealing with this crisis for all of us individually. I mean, for me, the number one thing that I rely on in my outdoor pursuits is resilience, just mental, you know, psychological resilience and knowing that no matter how I feel in the moment, it's going to change um, for mm. the better or for the worse. You know, if I feel terrible, it's going to get better. Um, if I feel really good, chances are that I will not be feeling really good, you know, for the entire duration of the, the project. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that everything's changeable and things pass, um, I think you know, recognizing that we're all in this together. Um, and uh, also just having the ability to roll with the punches. You know, it's just mm -hmm. solving one problem at a time, like, you know, with that Aconcagua 360 run or, you know, any any other um, number of projects that I've completed. It's just a matter of figuring out one thing after the other. And if you, mm -hmm. um, like Matt Damon said in The Martian, if you solve enough problems, you get to go home, right? <laughs> yep. No, I love that. I love that idea of just taking it one step at a time and um, resilience. And I mean, it can seem so overwhelming sometimes, like, but just focusing on your next step is really great advice. So I wanted to ask you now for people who are thinking about going to high altitude because you're you're a specialist at high altitude i mean you really excel at, at high altitude and that's something all, all that i also really admire about you because i grew up in minnesota i really struggle with altitude so what have you learned about dealing with high altitude and what advice do you have for people who are going to altitude for their first time yeah. well i'd actually be really excited to hear about your experiences at 8,000 meters as well because i've never been as high as you've been right i've only ever been to 7,000, and i'm still missing that last thousand meter band that i find really fascinating but um going up to you know about 23,000 feet which is where i've spent a lot of time i think the the biggest learning that i can share and the biggest advice that i have is 
don't fight the altitude, but just accept it. You know, altitude is a massive handicap for everybody. Some people react to it better than others, but the reality is no matter how strong you are, no matter how well-trained you are, you will be slow up there. That's just the way it is. And so mm-hmm. the less energy mm-hmm. um, we all can spend trying to fight it versus just accepting the fact that life mm-hmm. works at a very different pace up there, um, life and athletic performance both, I think that makes a big difference. I think that's just such great advice because, I mean, I like I haven't spent as much time at 7,000 meters because we usually, that's usually where we, a little bit above that is when we start using oxygen on the climbs I've done. I, I'm potentially interested in doing 8,000 meters without oxygen someday, but I'm going to think about that. But one of the things that I found when I was acclimatizing is that every little worry would just like zap my energy. So I just had to learn to be really careful with my thoughts and what I let enter my mind because just like some little worry would totally exhaust me. And it's just amazing. It gives you a lot of humility, I guess, spending time at high altitude because you just have to really learn how to, I don't know, it's it's so hard. (laughs) I really struggle. So you have my respect. So I wanted to talk now about gear. So before I went to show you, I remember we had a fun little handoff at the outdoor retailer trade show where you let me borrow your extra lens sock batteries. And so those are those heated electric socks. And I was wondering what other tips and tricks you have for staying warm in the mountains and on expeditions. I think um, the biggest thing is layers, 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 the more the better. (laughs) And uh, hot water bottles and sleeping bags at night. You know, that's uh, nothing that's groundbreaking or that other people don't do. But yeah, having a hot water bottle in a sleeping bag with you makes all the difference. And um, also having hot drinks with you on summer day, you know, using a thermos or whatnot. And just staying hydrated um, no matter what. You know, those are the biggest things that make a difference. I find also eating helps, like making sure I'm staying up on calories. So what do you like to eat when you're doing big missions in the mountains? For me personally or for the all teams? For both. So when I guide teams, I always try to bring as much fresh food up on the mountain as possible because I'm one of those freaks of nature who just has an indestructible stomach. So for me, I'm perfectly happy to just eat freeze-dried meals for weeks on end without change, right? For most other people, that is not the case. (laughs) So yeah, for our teams, I I bring up a lot of fresh food, you know, try to um, occasionally like make pancakes and stuff for breakfast and just have, you know, some vegetables and everything, Mm. whatnot for dinners. Uh, For me personally, in all honesty, I think that using freeze-dried meals is super simple and super efficient. Um, So I use a lot of backpackers pantry up there. And while I'm on the go, I fuel actually a lot with um, liquid nutrition. So I use Roctane powder Mm. from Goo Energy um, just to be able to get my calories with my water, right, which makes a huge difference. And then as well Mm. as gels and chews and waffles and all of that good stuff. Nice. Yeah, I remember hearing from another um, athlete I admire, and he recommended, like, you really need to just not worry too much, like, to not think too much about what you eat. And that's been really good for success for me in the mountains is not to, like, think too much about the foods I miss, just to, like, put those things out of my mind and just to, like, 
be more of a flexitarian, yeah. <laughs> being able to yeah. eat whatever. And I've, yeah, I found that's really helpful. I feel like that might also be so that I just like it might be one yeah. of the reasons why I really enjoy going back to Argentina just year after year after year because um, I'm a carnivore. I know that that's not environmentally friendly and I really should change it, but I do love meat. And um, in Argentina, you know, there is steak all the way up to base camp. So it's really quite nice to, to be able to have, uh, yeah, good food and plenty of it too when you're climbing a mountain. It's really interesting you bring that up because I ate more of a plant-based diet for a long time. I mean, not fully plant-based, but I was definitely more trying to eat less meat. And I ended up with just like extreme fatigue and low ferritin. And my and I like literally couldn't – like the mountains that I used to run up all of a sudden seemed three times the size. You know, I couldn't – I had no energy. And so my doctor actually recommended I start eating more red meat. And so I really think like responsibly sourced meat can be – and regenerative agriculture can be part of climate change solutions if it's done yeah. properly. And I'm sure that we'll get a lot of comments from that. But – um. It's an interesting discussion, but I really think there's something to be said with altitude and the iron and being a woman. Like, I still have my period, and um, I think there's something where I really, like, without some red meat in my diet, it's really hard for me to absorb yeah. enough iron. So I, there might be onto something nutritionally. But everyone is so different, and I know some athletes just really thrive on a yeah, plant-based diet. And then diet. others, you know, yeah, but others I just don't. Haven't. Like, you know, our mutual friend Libby Sauter, right? Um, she's a vegetarian most of the time, or at least, you know, has been for the time that I've known her. And uh, when we're climbing mountains together, she'd go and flex that diet and go and add meat to her diet for exactly those reasons, too. That's re that's really interesting. And I know there's great sources of plant-based um, iron, but for me, I don't know if there's something genetically, but it just doesn't seem like I'm able to mm -hmm. absorb it as well. And the iron thing for me has been really important to stay on top of my supplements and especially with altitude. So that's really interesting. Okay. So moving on, what are some of your favorite pieces of gear? Oh, favorite pieces of gear? Um, without any doubt, um, my trekking poles actually, and not really trekking poles, but my running poles. Um, so I use um, those poles from Lecky that are called micro trail poles and they have the trigger shark attachment. Do you use trigger shark when you ski, you know, the, the clips or... Sometimes I use it and sometimes I don't. It just depends. I mean, for the resort, it's a little bit. They've improved it now for backcountry yeah. skiing, but for trail yeah, running, like, I love for trail those running, poles. Because the I think it's amazing yeah. because you know the. In case you haven't seen them, you know whoever's listening, um, the poles don't have a traditional wrist strap, but you essentially have a little chuff guard that you wear on your hands, and then you clip those into the poles. So I started using that system uh, from Lecky about a year and a half ago now, and literally it's been a complete game changer for me. I mean, I it feels like I have four legs rather than two, right? I can transfer so much more weight onto my running poles, and that's what's been enabling me to go and like run races and win them, like the Uri 100, for example, where there's 43,000 feet off vertical change um well up and then forty three thousand feet of down right so, so i to this date i credit yeah oh my i credit gosh. My in that race to to the lucky um uh, trigger shark technology so that hands down is my favorite piece of gear and say that pole is so incredible and even if you're not a competitive trail runner even if you're just a weekend hiker like I would highly recommend them because the energy transfer from that wrist harness is incredible. And I found when I was rehabbing my knee mm -hmm. from ACL surgery that they were just incredible to help me get back out on the trails. And I love their trekking poles too. The MCT Vario trekking pole is, they're amazing. Um, but I just, I can't, I, I literally 
bring them all the time. I like don't go anywhere without them. (laughs) So I wanted now to go back to kind of talking a little bit about implicit bias and gender equality. And so what are some of the questions you get when you set off to do these big missions, these huge undertakings, when you go, when you're heading off to do them self-supported? It really depends on the environment that I'm in, but a lot of the time when people don't know me and they don't know my background, um, I just get a lot of raised eyebrows and a lot of questions about, oh, wait, you're you're going to do what? You're going to be out there by yourself? You know, oh, you don't want to do that. You know, um, a little bit of the whole, oh, honey, that's dangerous. You, you shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> and um, I mm-hmm. do still get a lot of skepticism as well from people who just kind of look at me and think that, um, I don't know what I'm talking about and, you know, I just, I'm trying to do something that's way above my head where I'm like, well, actually I'm doing this because I've built up to it and because I have a big history in doing exactly those things and because I've spent a lot of time prepping and researching for the project that's coming up, right? So, um, I certainly have seen a lot of situations where, um, yeah, I've either been, you know, a part of a lot of uh, mansplaining or just um, skepticism that I thought was fully unmerited. So how do you deal with that kind of mansplaining or, you know, when you get like tons of beta that you don't want or need, um, how do you deal with the naysayers and the doubters? I have different ways of addressing it. Um, sometimes, you know, if I'm out there completely by myself and I'm not in any sort of social, you know, like group setting, I will literally just cut somebody off and say, uh, hold, hold, hold. Um, I know what I'm doing and here's why. And I don't like doing that. I do it probably 15% of the time when those situations happen, but occasionally I just get so fed up with it that I literally just put my foot down and say, wait a second you know, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, What I prefer to do and the way I typically address um, those situations indirectly is a lot of the time this happens when I'm in a group setting, you know, where I'm with a team that I'm guiding or I'm, you know, with um, friendly um, just, you know, outfitters and staff and like other colleagues in the outdoor industry who know my background, but then there is a person or, you know, a new group who don't understand the background and so I just kind of let it slide and then leave the situation to itself to correct over time because you know that the newbies end up picking up on mm-hmm. um I guess uh, yeah my credentials so that's my preferred way of, of dealing with it but I really haven't found an elegant solution to um to all of that yeah I mean I'm really asking for myself <laughs> here because sometimes when you get those questions, then they come into your mind in like the inopportune moments when you really need to be super confident. Um, you know, you hear those questions that people ask you. And so I, I'm also just trying to figure out better ways for myself. And I know a lot of other people, men and women, people of all genders deal with that. Like anyone who doesn't really like fit the mold of what we think a mountaineer should look like. And so, um, so I was curious, but do you think that that doubting and naysaying it happens more to women than I men, right? I absolutely think so. I absolutely think so. And I mean, that was a big reason for why I started All Expeditions, which, you know, really is a an expedition business that's specifically for women. Um, and it's supposed to be either all female or predominantly female teams with female guides and where possible female support staff, right? That's that's exactly the reason that I started it. That's I mean, so when awesome. I when I look at just the last expedition that I was on with All, oh, this was also in Aconcagua here in February. 
I remember we <laughs> we had just started the trek. It was a team of uh, four women, myself included, all four young women. We were, I think, ages 23 to maybe 32 or something like that, or 34. And um, I remember we were at the first approach camp, you know, which was pretty empty. There was us, and then there were a couple of uh, predominantly male groups. And as we're sitting down for dinner, one of the climbers from a different group comes over, this Italian guy, and he's just like, oh, what are you girls doing here? And we're like, what do you think we're doing here? He's like, yeah, but but where did you come from? And we're like, well, we started at the trailhead, just like everybody else who's here, because this camp is exclusively here to support the approach to Concagua, right? There's no other reason to be there. So I'm like, we started at the trailhead, we hiked here. He's like, oh, but but where are you going to sleep tonight? Are you, I, I mean, where are you sleeping? And we're like, in the tents right over there that we set up like half an hour ago. And so I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And it was literally this incredulity of this guy who just couldn't fathom that we were there to climb the mountain. And then he was trying to start and explain to us, or me specifically, because, you know, he did understand that I was the leader of the group, but he started trying to explain to me, you know, about the difficulties and dangers of climbing up Chicago and whatever and this and that. And, um, you know, finally he was like, oh, wait, but, but have you been up there before, like on the summit? And I'm like, yeah, the last time about two weeks ago, as a matter of fact. And it just kept going and, you know, didn't let up. So... I don't think that that happens as much to men as it happens to women. Yeah, I mean, I really experienced a similar thing with my partner, Rob, as we were getting ready to go to Everest and we were telling people and it was really common that people would ask me, oh, so you're going to go to base camp? And I was like, no, I'm going to the summit. But he would never get that question. Like people would always just assume that he was going to the summit. And I was like... It just made me, it made me really, I mean, all these things, they make me frustrated. And so I wanted to ask, um, what can we do to disrupt that kind of implicit bias? I think it's a matter of sharing more stories, telling more stories of women doing awesome things. You know, that's that easy. And if we can start ingraining, not just in our little girls, but in our little boys as well, that doing rad things is not something that's Mm -hmm. gender specific, that I think will be the biggest yes. difference. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great um, that's a great answer. And I also think another thing everyone could do now to support women in mountaineering and to disrupt this implicit bias we're talking about is to make a donation to your scholarship fund to help get more oh. women out there. Because I used to think, like, I have three brothers, and I used to be sort of like, negative about women's expeditions I don't know why I think it was like some internal internalized misogyny but more and more as I've gotten older I see what a place they have and especially having strong women's leadership like you leading these women I think that is just so cool and also trying to have as many support staff and um you know to find women in those realms as well it's a huge thing everyone can do now is to go and make a donation via the link in the show notes. So, um, and to keep that program well funded, because that's another big disparity is the amount of funding women's projects get. Yeah, compared that's exactly to men's right. Projects. Well, you're going to make me go and actually reopen the donations now because we did a crowdfunding campaign uh, last month, but that's actually entirely closed at the moment. And right now, we're literally giving that money back out to our scholarship recipients, right? But of course, we're also going to run the same program in 2021. And I'm already starting about, you know, thinking about awesome. how to to go and make that happen. So yes, I will go and reopen the donations. Oh, so 
So right now you're trying to get the, the people to apply exactly, for the scholarship? Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. So if you know a woman or if you are a woman, I want to apply. Although Yeah, you probably want to qualify. Like, I would be worried that I would be worried that like I always feel like I still have the imposter syndrome. Like I'm going to be the worst <laughs> one and I'm going to like not be able to keep up. So if you have those worries, just know that everybody has those worries. And um, yeah, so you can recommend someone or um, sign up yourself. So I wanted to move on now to talking about your dynamic and your partnership with Paul. And I've seen you done some big walls and expeditions with your partner. And I wanted you to tell me about Paul him. is absolutely amazing. Uh, we got married about two years ago now. And he is a old school climber, you know, has spent a ton of time in Yosemite, has climbed El Capitan, I think over 40 times by now. And he's just, yeah, you're, you know, old school, original climber and an amazing adventure partner to me. So we do go on big adventures, on big climbs, awesome. and on expeditions together whenever we can, which is typically a couple times a year. Um, he is a much more hardcore climber than I will probably ever be, and I'm a much more hardcore runner and endurance athlete than he will ever be. So that's kind of how we divide and conquer. You know, We always say that um, I'm the one who gets us to the base of the wall, and he's the one who gets us up there <laughs> that's kind of our our setup that's but, awesome um, yeah it's really really amazing being able to adventure with him and you know he's quite a bit older than I am he's 25 years older than me so I get to benefit a lot from his experience um, on the wall and I've learned a lot from him there and then he gets to benefit from um, you know my stamina and I guess my youthful endurance and my ability to go and navigate the backcountry because even though he's done a ton of climbing he actually hadn't ever done a ton of um you know backcountry just kind of um backpacking hiking whatever um that wasn't related to climbing so we're good supplements that's so cool so what advice do you have for other couples on big walls and expeditions and who want to do these things together <laughs> are you going to answer that question afterwards as well because i want to know from you and rob <laughs> Yes. I, yeah, yeah. I can I can answer that. Yeah, Excellent. for sure. But I want to hear um, yours first because so, I think it's different for every couple. Yeah, from my yeah. perspective, I think the biggest thing is um, being kind to one another um, and realizing that when things get stressful, because they invariably do, right, on a mountain or on a wall, when things get stressful, mm -hmm. that it's the two of you together against the obstacle rather than you know, uh, you competing with your partner or, you know, kind of being stressed out or because of one another. So that I think is the biggest thing that I've learned. And, um, also just being realistic and understanding what strengths and weaknesses, um, each member of the party brings to the table, but you should do no matter what, no matter who you're out with. But of course it's a lot more, um, pertinent, I guess, if you're also married or in a romantic relationship with your partner, you know, it makes things a little bit harder. But just, yeah, being able to acknowledge that, for example, for mm -hmm. me, I am not as strong a climber as Paul is. I don't have as calm a lead head as he does. He is not as strong of mm -hmm. a backcountry navigator or as strong of a hiker as I am. So, you know, those are gives and takes and we both acknowledge them and work with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you really nailed it there by saying to celebrate and honor the differences and the strengths, because 
for me and my relationship with Rob, like he comes from the triathlon background and I come from more of the ski mountaineering, more of the technical steep terrain, and he knows how to just power out the miles. And so the combination of those two specialties has been really nice because he's helped me learn how to train like an athlete because skiers, we just go skiing, you know, like we don't keep track of, I like got a fitness watch and started tracking everything. And it was like, was, it was a game changer for me in my training and my, um, in my progress. But then on expeditions, I think just trying to always, and in life, recognizing the little things that he does every day and to, to say thank you and to be grateful for those because it's really easy to take someone for granted and to just like start to accept those little things. Like Rob empties my pee bottle. I call him the pee fairy. And it's like the nicest thing in the world to wake up and have an empty pee bottle. And so to make sure I never take that for granted and then I'm always recognizing and I'm grateful for his contributions. And, um, and then the other thing is taking responsibility for your feelings and, it can be really I, – what I struggled with a lot when I was younger is, like, blaming things mm-hmm. on other people. Like, you're the reason we failed or whatever. Like, this is your fault. And learning to step back and to take responsibility and to not, um, you know, be the victim or the perpetrator or any of those things in the drama triangle. That took me a long time to learn, and that's been really crucial to our yeah, our partnership. Good. It's something I'm still working on for sure. That's awesome advice. Yeah. So – um. What is some advice you have for people who have these big athletic goals but aren't sure where to start? Make a plan. As in, you know, if you already have a goal in mind, then in a way it should be easy because all you got to do is commit to the goal and say, I'm going to do this at that particular time. And once you've made a concrete commitment to a goal, the next step is simply working backwards from it and saying, okay, now what needs to happen in order for me to make that you know a reality so for example for me and a friend a couple of years ago it was um us signing up for an ironman together and i'd never done anything in the triathlon sphere and you know my friend also had never done anything and she just really wanted to do it so we we went ahead and we signed up for a race that was about a year and two months out and uh then we started working backwards from it it was like okay now what do we have to do uh, let's see go buy road bikes learn how to ride them you know get into the pool start swimming you know build up the endurance yada 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 but it just I think it becomes a lot easier to make progress if you have a concrete thing that you're working towards that has some sort of external forcing function. So mm-hmm. either a race or, you know, a big thing that you want to do independently, but you've told the world about the fact that you're going to do it. So now you're committed and now you have to follow through. Mm-hmm. That it, that definitely helps to put the pressure on. And then what advice do you have for people who are unsatisfied in their careers and yearn for the open road or the high peaks of the mountains? I think very similar advice. Um, Make a plan and make it happen. For me personally, I waited until I hit real burnout in my old career and I felt like I had no other choice but quit. Um, I think it would have been a lot Mm -hmm. better and a lot um, nicer if I had been deliberate and strategic about planning my exit because I'd known for three or four years that I wasn't happy in the job that I was doing. And yet it took me until an acute, you know, burnout crisis to finally pull the trigger and hand in my resignation. So don't wait for that, but go and uh, give yourself that kick in the behind and um, just give yourself a goal, be it, you know, a year out or two years out or whatever, but make it concrete and start working towards it run towards something rather than be running away from something. 
Ooh, I like that. I used to do a lot of my mountains mm-hmm. and lines out of spite. <laughs> I really let like anger be my fuel, and it's taken me many years to learn how to take that like teenage. <laughs> I had a long teenage phase. <laughs> Like through my late 20s, you know, I still had that teenage angst and to like go into the mountains from a place of self-love rather than like this escapism or this like unhealthy way of putting myself in risky situations. So I really like what you said about running towards. Um, Okay, well, now I just wanted to ask you a couple quick rapid fire questions. So first one, favorite TV show? (laughs) Don't have any. I don't have a TV. (laughs) You don't have a TV? You don't Netflix or anything? Really? No, I, I do Netflix. Uh, most recently, I've been watching Elite, which is really terrible and guilty. But yeah, I, that was the first thing that came up with my suggestions. And when I go organize or clean, then that's what's running in the background right now. Yeah. See, like, I didn't watch TV for a long time. But then my husband, when I started dating him, and he was teaching me how to train like an athlete, he's like, you have to rest. And so that's when I started watching more TV. What's your favorite book? Favorite books? Or anything you're reading now? <laughs> Favorite books? Ooh, um, I haven't read a book for pleasure um, since Akukawa, actually. But the last one that I read was The Emerald Mile, which was amazing. Highly recommended. It's about the fastest run through the Grand Canyon on a dory, and it's fascinating. The Emerald Mile. Cool. Thanks for that recommendation. Favorite color? Yellow or black. Okay. Bumblebee colors. <laughs> exactly. Favorite food? Ooh, all of it. I like meat. I like sushi. I really like mm. German breakfast. I'm from Germany originally. So um, as my husband would say, I'm food driven. What is German breakfast? Uh, it's all sorts of, you know, like nice breads and rolls and cold cuts and sausages and cheeses and Nutella. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's like all cold breakfast. Ooh, yum. Okay. That sounds great. Morning person or night owl? <laughs> both <laughs> okay i don't sleep <laughs> do you take naps <laughs> sometimes though not as often as i would like no the reality is i love being active in the morning a lot of the time i'm too tired so probably more of a night owl but i feel like i do my most productive work when i do get up early yeah me too me too cap do you do do you do coffee or caffeine <laughs> uh coffee yeah. yeah yeah me too i wouldn't be able to do much without coffee i'm quite addicted Okay, a piece of advice you'd give your younger self. Don't discount your dreams. You know, when I was, I think, a teenager, probably 13, 14 years old, I would leave mm. through National Geographic. And I was always like, oh, my God, you know, how amazing would it be to maybe be a National Geographic, like, expedition photographer at some point. And it never even crossed my mind that I could ever possibly even work towards that until, you know, a couple of years ago. And, you know, now at this point, I'm not a National Geographic expedition photographer, but I have had photos published in National Geographic, right? And I've been written about in National Geographic. So I'm like, things are possible. That's awesome. I love that so much. Um, Okay, so last question. What's the best way for people to keep in touch to follow you? Definitely online, Instagram. Um, My name is complicated, as we established at the beginning of the show. But uh, yeah, you can find me at first name, last name. So that's um, sunnystroer.com, S-U-N-N-Y-S-T-R-O-E-E-R. Or Instagram is first initial, last name. So that's S-S-T-R-O-E-E-R. And uh, of course, you can also follow all expeditions um, on Instagram, which is a little bit easier, though still not uncomplicated. It is AW Expeditions, all one word. And uh, yeah, you'll be able to see everything there. 
Awesome. I'll be sure to link those in the show notes. Thank you, Sunny, so much for your time today. It was awesome to sit down and chat with you. And I hope we could get out for an adventure soon in real life. Yeah, we got to go make that happen. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Caroline. Awesome. Okay, have a great day. Bye-bye. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table.